Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for opportunity now to look at your word. We pray that as we reflect on this last chapter of Jeremiah, that you help us to understand more of your faithfulness, that we might, that we might, uh, that we might know you and love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally made it. Well done. After 16 weeks and 52 chapters, we've got to the end of Jeremiah. It's a long book, isn't it? Uh, in fact, uh, in terms of the word count in Hebrew, it's the longest book in the Bible. It's even longer than the Psalms. Uh, it's a very long book. And really, from start to finish, it's been pretty much the same message, hasn't it? I mean, c- come back with me all the way back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11, God says that he is, do you remember, he's, he's watching to make sure that his word will be fulfilled. God says that he will do what he says he will do. And what's he going to do? He says he's going to judge and destroy his people, the Jews. The Jews have been sinful, they've been idolatrous, and so people from the north, that is the Babylonians, will come and destroy them. Chapter 1 and verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. Now remember, uh, the word for almond tree is the word watch. In Hebrew, it's the watching tree, because it's the first one that comes that, that, that uh, flowers. So the watching tree. The Lord said to me, you've seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. That's where we started. No surprises in this book. And that's been the theme. For the vast majority of Jeremiah, for 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry, right through the reigns of Josiah, Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoiakim, the Korean one, Jehoiachin, the Chinese one, and Zedekiah, all the bad eggs who we saw, saw today in the, kid, in the kids' message, it's been the same message. Stop disobeying God. Stop worshipping idols. God's judgment is coming. Babylon will defeat and destroy you. One week, somewhere around about the middle of the series, um, Jeff Falls from our, our 9 o'clock congregation spoke to me at the door. And he said, going through Jeremiah, it's a bit like driving throughout back Australia. In one sense, it's all the same. It's all red dirt wherever you look. But it's interesting, if you drive through and you look closely, wherever you are, you'll see lots of unique elements, lots of variations on the theme. I reckon it's a great illustration. Jeremiah has been lots of the red dirt of judgment, but with constantly different, unique variations on the theme, different aspects. Well, now as we come into the last chapter of the book, uh, we get, as Edwin was telling us before, uh, an epilogue, a historical note. These are not the words of Jeremiah anymore. They ended at the end of the last chapter, as we were told. Now, the editor of the book is reporting what happened in history. He's reporting how Jeremiah's message came true. He tells the story of the destruction of Jerusalem. So first we focus on on King Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebelled against God. He also rebelled against the king of Babylon. And he faced the, 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 the terrible, terrible 
judgment of God. Jeremiah chapter 52 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Jeremiah chapter 52 and verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamotal, daughter of Jeremiah, a different Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, so it was about 18 months of siege, ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden that the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon where he put him in prison till the day of his death. I know we already saw this story uh, a few chapters ago, but I mean, that's, I can't think of a worse judgment. Can you? To have your children killed in front of your eyes and then that's the last thing you see as they put out your eyes. That is God's judgment on the king, Zedekiah. Next, uh, next we see God's judgment on the city of Jerusalem and on the temple. The city and the temple are systematically taken apart. They are plundered, they are burnt to the ground, and the majority of the few survivors are taken into exile. Verse 12. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. And now we see what they did to the temple. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the twelve bronze bulls under it, and the movable stands, which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each of the pillars was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on top of the one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its pomegranates was similar. 
There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was 100. This great, magnificent building to the glory of God, torn apart and plundered and taken to Babylon. God's judgment on the king, God's judgment on the city and on the temple. Now in the next section we focus on God's judgment on the people of those who had been captured. Um, many are executed and the few survivors are taken into exile. And just have a look at the numbers here because it really is only a few people left. I mean, even if we're, even if we're only counting adult men here, the reality is the Jewish people have been utterly decimated. I mean, it was millions who went in to, 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 to Israel from from Egypt. Now look at how many are left. Verse 24. The commander of the guard took his prisoners, Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and several royal, royal, seven royal advisers. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan the commander took them all, and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So, Judah went into captivity away from her land. This is the number of people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, so the seventh year is actually before what we're reading about at the moment, this is back in 597 BC when uh, Jehoiachin is taken uh, into, into exile. So, uh, 597 BC, in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. Then in Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, and that's the story we're reading about at the moment, um, 832 people from Jerusalem. And in his 23rd year, and this is a later attack on Jerusalem that we don't know anything else about, uh, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard. There were 4,600 people in all. That's not many people, is it? Even if it is just, even if we're only counting adult men, this is, this is what, 10, 15,000 people maximum. Everyone else is dead. The Jews have been pretty much wiped out. Hitler was not the first to try it. And Nebuchadnezzar nearly succeeded. In the very last section, we focus on Judah's previous king. The man who had been taken into exile back in that first attack in 597 BC, the man who'd been replaced by Zedekiah, his name's Jehoiachin. After a while, King Jehoiachin, well, Jehoiachin, receives some favourable treatment at the hands of the king of Babylon. He's a prisoner, he's in exile, he's in a foreign land, but at least he's well looked after, like some kind of pet dog. Verse 31. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, that's King Nebuchadnezzar's son, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison on the 25th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were with him at Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived, Till the day of his death. And that's it. That's where the book of Jeremiah ends. 
Can you see what's here in this final chapter? God's terrible judgment has come. After 40 years, 52 chapters, what Jeremiah said has come to pass. God has kept watch over his word. He's done what he warned he would do. He has done what he promised he would do. King Zedekiah, the city, the temple, the people, King Jehoiachin, they have faced the terrible judgment of God. It's, It's very dark, isn't it? It's very, very dark. The Jews have been practically wiped out. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple has been torn down. The reign of the line of King David has ended. It is a tragic, tragic, tragic finish. And yet if you think carefully about it, it's not all bad news. In in fact, let, let me give you two reasons why, paradoxically, this ending is good news. Two reasons why this ending shouldn't just make us sad. Two reasons why this ending should should make us hopeful. First reason is this. God keeps his word of judgment. When God promises he will judge, he does judge. It might take a long time. It might take a very, very long time if you're preaching for 40 years, but it will happen. Unfortunately, I am one of those hopeless parents who makes threats and then doesn't follow through. It happens especially in the car. I'm driving the car. The kids are all fighting in the back. It escalates and escalates, and and there's nothing I can do. I can't do anything because I'm driving the car. All I can do is speak. I can't separate them into different rooms. I can't physically restrain them or something like that. And so what I do... I invent some terrible punishment and threaten them with it. I say something like, and I haven't actually used this threat yet, but I I quite like it, and just just for the purposes of example, uh, I I say something like this. I say, if you don't stop fighting, when we get home, I will surgically remove the parts of your brain that make you fight all the time without anaesthetic, and then I'll put them in soup and make you eat them. (laughs) Now, of course, they don't stop fighting. So we get home and the kids say, all right, Dad, surgery time, get your scalpel. (laughs) Now, as much as I can see the good sense of carrying out my threat, I can't really do it, particularly not with a docs worker in the congregation. So I say to the kids, yeah, ha ha, go and clean your room, stop fighting or I'll think of something even worse to do to you. Now, there are a number of problems with my disciplinary method. First, it doesn't change their behaviour. It doesn't fix the problem. They keep on fighting because they know my threats are empty. And second, it just encourages them to disrespect me. I'm someone who can't be trusted to keep my word. God is not like me. God is a father who does not make idle threats. Jeremiah 52 is abundant evidence of it. God is watching to see that his word will be fulfilled. If he says it, he will do it. He is faithful. God keeps his word of judgment. And do you know what? You can see this just as clearly in the New Testament as you can in the Old. In fact, in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, there's a little poem. Now, put it there on your outline because I reckon it's a really interesting one. It's interesting because it doesn't mean what you might think it at first. It comes in four parts, this poem. The first two parts are positive. 
They say, if you keep trusting in Jesus, you will live and reign with him forever. And then the third part is negative. It says, if you give up on Jesus, you'll be in trouble. But, but have a look and ask yourself this question. What about the fourth part? Is it positive or negative? There on your outline. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. Number one, if we died with him, that is, if we're trusting in Jesus, his death is our death. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, keep relying on Jesus to the end. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's the second part. Third part, now we get negative. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Now the fourth part, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What do you reckon that means? If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. It sounds positive, doesn't it? It sounds like God will still love us. But if you look at how the poem works, two parts and two parts, and if you compare it to other parts of the New Testament, it becomes clear. It's not positive at all. At least it's not positive for those who are faithless, for those who stop trusting Jesus. If we are faithless, God cannot disown himself. In other words, he will not go back on his word. He's not going to expose himself to such disrespect like a dad does when he makes idle threats. God has promised, if you are faithless, if you will not trust in Jesus... He will judge you. And so if you are faithless, he will faithfully fulfill his word and do what he threatens and you will be judged. Friends, God has not changed since the time of Jeremiah. God keeps his word of judgment. That is very bad news for those who refuse to rely on Jesus But there's also a sense in which it's good news. It's good news that God keeps his word of judgment. Why? Because it means evil will come to an end. Evil will not go on forever. Unlike my idle threats which change nothing, God's judgment will transform creation. God's judgment means that all the terrible things that we see around us today, all the terrible stuff that comes because of human sin and injustice, they will not be around forever. Every injustice will be fixed. Every wrong will be righted. There will be a new heaven and earth with no sin, with no death, with no pain. Why? Because God is not a faithless parent like me. He will keep his promise to judge and destroy evil, just like he did in Jeremiah. God keeps his word of judgment. That's the first reason this ending is good news. Second reason. Second reason why this ending is good news. Here's another reason why why we can be filled with hope because of the way Jeremiah finishes. You see, this God who keeps his promises, he hasn't only promised judgment, has he? In Jeremiah... God has also made good promises to his people, promises of salvation. And this God who keeps his word will also keep his word of salvation. Here in chapter 52, you see just glimpses of it. Those few survivors, they're very few, but they're there. Jehoiachin, just that that, that, that glimpse of of kindness towards him. It, It all looks very small. It all looks pretty hopeless on the surface. But not if you've read through all of Jeremiah. 
Because if you've read through the whole of Jeremiah, you will know that God has plans for these people. Plans as that famous verse, and, and as I wanted it to be our last reading for Jeremiah, famous uh, that, that plans as, as those verses from Jeremiah says, plans to prosper them and not to harm them. Plans to give them a new hope, a new future, and most important of all, plans to make a new covenant with them. A covenant in which you'll forgive them, in which you'll give them new hearts so they can be his people, so they'll never again have to endure that kind of destruction, so, so that Jerusalem will never again have to be... so that God's people will be able to be with him forever. Never have to be cast out of his presence. They're, they're on your outline from Jeremiah 31. This magnificent promise of the new covenant. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the, with the house of Judah. I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts... I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Friends, God was watching to see that his word of judgment would be fulfilled and this same faithful God is watching to ensure that his promises of eternal salvation are fulfilled. And of course, it's all, it all happens in Jesus, doesn't it? God has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promises through Jesus Christ. Jesus came from that line of 4,600 survivors. And when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, he made it possible for God to establish the new covenant he promised in Jeremiah. He said it at the Last Supper, didn't he? This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus has poured out God's Holy Spirit who brings us forgiveness, who has begun the work of transforming our hearts and the day is going to come when Jesus returns, when the Holy Spirit will raise our bodies to life, when, when he will fully transform our hearts and when we will be changed into the sort of people who can live in the presence of God forever. As the Bible says, try not to break into Handel's Messiah as you hear this, as the Bible says, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. We will be changed. Those are big, big promises. It might seem all too good to be true. But like in Jeremiah, God is watching. Like it says in that poem from 2 Timothy, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. God keeps his word of salvation. And so do you know what? The day is going to come. The day is going to come when some editor puts a footnote on the history of the world. Not to tell the story of destruction like in Jeremiah 52, but to tell the story of God dwelling with his transformed people in a new Jerusalem that will never fall. In fact, if you think about it, God's already told us the story, hasn't he? There on your outline from Revelation 21. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, here is the historical footnote to your eternity. Have a look. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... 
The dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Too good to be true? Ah, these words are trustworthy and true. God keeps his word of judgment. God keeps his word of salvation. That is terrible for God's enemies, but for those of us who are in Christ, that's our eternal hope, isn't it? That is our key to a happy ending. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious, holy, faithful, trustworthy Father, we thank and praise you because you do what you say. Lord, we acknowledge that you are a God who does judge and will judge and we thank and praise you for that. But we also want to especially thank and praise you that you're a God who saves. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who has borne the judgment that we deserve for us. Thank you that he is now alive and that those who have died with him will live with him. Those who endure will reign with him. Father, we thank you for your magnificent promises. We long for the day when Jesus returns, when you raise us to life, forgiven, cleansed, transformed, changed, so we can live with you forever. Father, bring on that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.